Hi, and welcome to Innovate by Design, the podcast that interviews experts in design and innovation on topics that matter to you. This podcast is a joint effort of members of the DTX and Design and Business community in collaboration with the Center for Business Innovation at Chalmers University of Technology, Sweden. In this first season, we are going to explore how to make design and innovation work inside large organizations. This is episode three. I'm Ingo Raut, and with me today is Diana Joseph, former director of innovation enablement at Citrix. In our conversation, we will talk about how design thinking was scaled inside Citrix, adapting design thinking bootcamps to an engineering audience, the profitability of design thinking, and how design thinking went from being a driver to innovation culture change to being a tool in the toolbox. So I hope you are going to enjoy my conversation with Diana Joseph. Hi, Diana. Hey, Ingo. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. I'm really looking forward to hear more about the Citrix story from you. Yeah, it's a long and convoluted tale. <laughs> so maybe we should start with your start. What was the state of design thinking when you joined the company in 2013? Catherine Courage was the SVP of customer experience, and she was really setting the scene. And I, I don't know if I've ever heard of customer experience sitting at the executive table like that. Um, and she had already decided that design thinking was going to be our frame of reference. So there was a lot of excitement about it. There was a lot of interest and there was a lot of investment. So when you say investment, how many workshops were run at this point in time? Do you know that? Before I started, they had done a couple of very large workshops. So they had they had done some exposure workshops at two of the major conferences, internal conferences that Citrix ran. So the, the big meeting for engineers got a design thinking treatment and the big meeting for salespeople got a design thinking treatment. So that was, you know, hundreds of people already. And then they also did a couple of much more focused workshops. They did a workshop for the HR department where they were really trying to get some specific things done. They did uh, an engagement with the team that was responsible for compliance training to see if they couldn't improve that experience. Um, so there were there were hundreds of people who had been at least exposed, if not um, dug into design thinking at that stage. Given that so many have already been exposed to design thinking, what was your role coming into Citrix? My role was to make sure that those uh, workshops happened in a strategic way and that, that we understood the impact they were having and how to improve them. So when you say improve, how were the workshops that have been done already? Can you tell us a little bit about that? The large meetings had been a few hours at a time, just like let us show you what design thinking is. And the workshops for specific projects had been pretty project focused. So, um, so th these were really pretty straight ahead design thinking boot camps, just like you would see at D school. Um, but they they were for Citrix employees, and they were um, any anybody could sign up. So we ran them in Santa Clara, in, in California, where I was. We ran them in Florida, in the headquarters office. We ran them for R&D in Sydney, Australia, and in Seattle. We ran them, uh, we ran one in Chicago. So um, the, we, were, we were really trying to do boot camps globally. 
So what was your particular role at Citrix? I started Citrix in a role that was designed to bring design thinking boot camps across the company. And I worked really closely with a vendor called Lime Design, and we started running boot camps. And uh, as we were learning how to do that, we realized that there was more that we could learn and um, more tools that we could integrate. And so um, we we grew the group a little bit. There, so instead of two of us, we had maybe four of us. Was that inside the company yeah. or including Lime Design? With Citrix. And then we partnered with Lime Design so that we could learn how to run those boot camps ourselves. And we um, started to think more in terms of innovation enablement more broadly. And that became the name of the group. So uh, I was the director of the innovation enablement group at Citrix. And our job was to figure out how to grow innovators and innovations. So when you talk about growing innovators and innovation, what was your secret sauce? I mean, how did you go about it? What is the secret sauce? The secret sauce is desirability, viability, and feasibility. So what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that if you're going to be an a successful innovator. In other words, if you're going to be an innovator that makes things that stick, you need to be laser focused on what do people want in a really deep way? How can it make money? How can it be sustainable in whatever context you're in? And what's feasible? What skills and materials and resources and um, relationships do you have and what does that allow you to do? So how did you get started with that? I mean, how did you bring that to people inside the organization and made that work? So we started out doing pretty traditional design thinking workshops and we, we saw right away the same things that you see in design thinking boot camps anywhere where there are some people that have this really significant epiphany during the program and there's this sense that they sort of changed some of their mindsets for good. Um, and so that was really exciting. But then we were doing interviews afterwards with people who did our boot camps or even people who did Stanford's boot camp. It was very hard to see impact. It was very hard to see how their work changed. Even if mindsets changed permanently, that didn't necessarily lead to the work practice changing. Directly, And um, so we, we looked at that pretty carefully and what we found was that people were going back to an environment that hadn't changed. So we had, everybody was from Citrix, but they were from all over Citrix. And when they went back to their own work environment on Wednesday after their two day workshop, they had the same manager, they had the same colleagues, they had the same work assignments, they had the same processes that they had to follow. Uh, and it's, it, it's very hard, one, it's very hard for one person to spark a transformation. So what did you do about it? Um, we did these two-day workshops and I wasn't completely satisfied because I was hungry for impact. And what I was seeing was, you know, delight and, and surprise and, and a sense of change come over people, but I wasn't seeing that actually change what they were doing. So we, we just thought one, of the, we thought one really significant factor was that two days is not enough. You can't, you can't learn enough methods in two days to really apply them in your work. Um, and so we started working with the Citrix Startup Accelerator uh, and thinking about much longer programs. So we kind of stole from the idea of 
the Lean Startup class, which is a 12-week class, and it's a 12-week class because that's how long a quarter is at a university, right? Um, so there's no, no particular magic to 12 weeks, but it's a lot longer than two days, and we like that. Um, so we would we uh, invited teams to come in, and they had to have they uh, they were teams that had an idea. They would ap apply as a team with their idea, and the teams that were selected would go into a two-day boot camp. The two-day boot camp was a little different from the design thinking boot camps that we were doing in the first place because we wanted to add in more methods. Um, design thinking is great; it's super powerful, um, especially for the desirability component of of innovation. So we were thinking about desirability, viability, and feasibility. And we wanted innovations to come out that had all three of those pillars, all three of those elements in a really strong way. And uh, design thinking is the best toolkit I can imagine for getting at desirability. It doesn't say anywhere near as much about feasibility or viability. So we wanted more practical methods for how do you decide what idea would be a decent business? Because our company is not going to sponsor something that's not a decent business, no matter how desirable it is, right? Um, no matter how much empathy we've used, if we can't make it pay for itself, it doesn't make sense. And then same with feasibility, right? Like, like what's desirable? You know, in one of our workshops, we discovered that a time machine would be really desirable. <laughs> <laughs> but we couldn't quite make it feasible. So, you know what I mean? So, so okay, so, so, so what tool set is going to help us understand what's feasible? Um, so our, our, we redesigned our boot camp. It still has the same kind of basic features of a design thinking boot camp where you're going to go out in the world and learn what you need to learn. But it's got, it's got we, we sort of scrunched the design thinking component, component down to a single day. And the... The second day uh, has a lot more to do with business modeling and collecting data. So by the end of day one, you've got a prototype, and then you and then um, day two, you put that prototype out in the world on a web page and try to collect some data about it, and you build a business model. So by the end of day two, you've got a pitch that covers all three of those ideas. So we ex it's still not enough, right? Now we're exposing even more methods. <laughs> Right, so so that I still we still didn't think that was going to have impact, but we thought it would be enough exposure that if you went immediately into an incubator where you have some time set aside to take a real idea of your own through that same process, that that would be more impactful. And how did you help employees to take their idea forward? I mean, after the workshop. So um, we did it a couple of different ways in our collaboration with the Citrix Startup Accelerator. Um, uh, we had a program called the Innovators Program, and that included outside startups and internal product teams that would work full-time on ideas over the course of 12 weeks. We'd have like a, a day of curriculum once a week, uh, and during that day they had to present um, what they had learned about their most risky hypothesis and how they were moving forward. And then they would work all week, and then there's a giant pitch session at the end. And how did you address people that didn't have 100% time? So, for example, regular employees. We we wanted to have more access for uh, internal employees as well. We wanted to create more entrepreneurial energy for people who weren't necessarily working directly on products. And so we built something called Spark Park. Same curriculum, same framework, but they weren't they didn't have 100% of their time freed up. Um, we asked for 
50%. I think we may have gotten 20%. <laughs> but instead of having a day of curriculum each week, we had two hours each week. And people moved forward as best they could. And we, again, had a giant pitch session at the end. So we had, we had presentation coaching and they all got up in front of the whole company in a panel of, of executives to present what they had figured out about the desirability, viability, fees, and feasibility of their ideas over the course of 12 weeks. So given the experience from these two groups, how do you experience the difference between the two approaches? Well, so in, in terms of time, the difference was huge. Um, it, <laughs> in, terms of, in, terms of, in terms of impact, some of the, the ideas in the innovators program are actually funded by somebody. They're continuing on as projects. They're not getting as much support for their learning anymore, but they, hopefully they have learning baked into the DNA of how their company, if you will, is running. They, they need to understand their customers. They need to understand the business environment in order to move forward. Um, the, for Spark Park, I think the changes were more impactful on the the innovators. So the thing that's interesting about Spark Park is that, yeah, they're probably not investing enough time for that innovation to win out. There'll probably be small changes that, that actually get implemented, but the, the big ambitious ideas, maybe you're not going to be done in 12 weeks, right? <laughs> um, but, the, but the way that innovators change I really hope is going to be sticky um, the truth is we, we we don't know um, the 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 program ended um, before we we really got a chance to find out what the long-term impacts would be it would be super interesting to go back to those people and find out whether those changes stuck so did you have any personal feedback or comments on how people developed or what stuck with them? We certainly had a lot of conversation about how those changes stuck. People talked about just not being able to go back to their old way of working again because you can't go back to waterfall. You can't go back to like, well, we decided six months ago that this is what we were going to build, so we're going to go ahead and build it. Once you've discovered that there's so much to learn by paying attention to your customers. This reminds me of the topic of mindset change and that some people find it essential to first start changing people's mindset and then developing their skills. Do you think that's true, that you first have to go about mindsets? Yes, and. <laughs> right? Yes, it's critical to change mindsets, but it's not sufficient. What does it mean to change a mindset? So there's that epiphany that people experience during a short boot camp that feels very exciting and, and maybe is memorable even in the long run. But how do you tell whether somebody has fundamentally changed the way they're going to look at the world and the way that they're going to look at their work, right? The language has changed. That's what we know at that point. We don't know anything much deeper than that. I, I don't want to get too philosophical, <laughs> but like I really don't know what your mindset is, Ingo. What I know is what you say and what you do. I think that the, the place I've come to is that I want to see changed behavior, that language isn't enough for me. Mm -hmm. um, and if somebody is really behaving differently, if they really are working differently, that's how we know it changed. So did you use that insight in any way to measure the impact of design thinking? Because you mentioned earlier, I think, that you found some way to actually assess the impact of design thinking. 
Oh gosh, I I don't think I really discovered a way to measure the impact. <laughs> I mean, I try, I, I tried, and I knew that what I wanted to look at was change. I don't feel like I got good at knowing the meaning of any particular degree of change. So, if somebody would tell you they found a way to measure the impact of design thinking, what would you tell them? <laughs> oh, that'd be awesome. That would be really great. That would be really great. I want it. Please, please share it. Publish it immediately. <laughs> So previously to the show, you told me that there was also some kind of catalyst program. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, absolutely. So that started before I got there and, and it was the idea of exposing as many people to design thinking as possible with the notion that they would become advocates, that they would become missionaries, if you will, for the cause and spread it more and more around Citrix. So people who went through any of our programs were considered catalysts We wanted to touch everybody in the company. We wanted everyone in the company to become a catalyst for design thinking and for innovation in the company. So in addition to these two-day workshops and the longer-term programs, we started doing very short programs, uh, really a two-hour design thinking experience. Um, and we took the model of the Stanford wallet exercise. There's a basic framework for running a two-hour design thinking workshop. And so Olya Daughter, who was on my team, built one of those around the ideal mobile experience, which was very relevant for Citrix's business. And it was also, it seemed to resonate better with uh, particularly engineers than the breakfast exercise, the gift-giving exercise. What made you realize that you needed to change this? Um, we got some. We got feedback early in the game when we were when we were first doing our two day workshops that we were being perceived as the hippy dippy California <laughs> people, right? So we were going and we were asking people to play improv games and and um, and say woohoo and and um, things that were behaviors that were very strange to our audiences, and um, we hadn't made it at all clear what the value of that of all of that noise was. So what was the value? Can you give an example of what you did? I remember um, the, the engineering work, the engineering meeting that I mentioned, the big one with hundreds of people, uh -huh. um, that was in London. And uh, we went back to London a year later and asked people about the experience. And the central feedback was too much rah-rah Americanism. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you deal with that? really important way we dealt with that is to make the problems that we were solving much closer to the work that people were doing. So instead of having the breakfast exercise or the gift giving exercise, we had the ideal mobile experience exercise. Can you shortly explain what this was about? Yeah. So, it, so over the course of two hours, uh, people would pair up and go through a design thinking process where they would interview each other, um, come up with ideas, prototype, iterate, and then share what they had designed. So they found out that someone was living far away from their spouse. They might design a mobile jewelry that would allow you to, to feel closer to your loved ones. So um, there, were, there was a whole range of things and people could be as technical as they wanted or they could be as touchy-feely as they wanted. There was more room to stay closer to what you knew. There's a trade-off around that. It gave us more credibility. We weren't immediately drummed out of the room for talking about Halloween costumes or, you know, Mother's Day gifts, right? But at the same time, 
if we allowed people to stay too close to what they were already doing, you might not get that epiphany. So, um, so it's a trade-off that we made re- very consciously because we really just felt like we were losing engineers entirely if we if we allowed the problem to be too far away from something that they could get excited about as engineers per se. And how did you introduce that challenge to them? Was it think about mobile devices or was it think about mobility in general? How did you get them going on the topic? So the two-hour exercise doesn't give us very much time to describe anything, right? It really just says you're going to have five minutes to interview your partner about their experience with mobility right now. So the idea was you're going to build the ideal mobile experience for your partner. Was that everything you changed about the challenge or was there something else that you changed or you wish you would have changed? I think one of the things that I have found sort of frustrating about design thinking is that, and part part of it is like, I'm not an academic anymore. I'm not spending a ton of time reading <laughs> anymore or talking theory. But I, I feel like like you go to boot camp and it's kind of under theorized. It's like, do this. Okay, but when do I do this? And and under what circumstances would I change it? And and what what are the affordances that I'm looking for? And what are the, like, when, you know, when you talk, just, there's not much to go on to adapt it in the real world. You know what I mean? Like, like we're just doing, we're not really talking about why it is the way it is. Um, and I, I think marrying the theory and the practice together, I think there's so much power in that. From a researcher's perspective, I want to kind of agree, but I was wondering from a facilitator's perspective, I think the boot camps are already quite cramped, right? Yes, that's right. That's right. I, I, it, you shouldn't necessarily, changing the boot camps so that we have lots of conversation about why, I don't know if that's a good idea, <laughs> but week two of boot camp maybe starts to do that. Or maybe, you know, boot camp shows you what it is but you don't really get how to do it yet. So then you have to try it for a while and fail and see see those gaps in your thinking. And then having the theory arrive at just the right time is what we want to do. Mm-hmm. So this makes me wonder about your Catalyst program and the two-day workshop. And if you could really call somebody a Catalyst after um, two days of design thinking experience. That's totally fair. So the the two day boot camps were the were the, the we were talking about earlier. Those were if somebody went through a two day boot camp, we counted them as a catalyst. And um, were they all catalysts? Catalyst with a small C? Probably not. At minimum, I think it's fair to say that we had planted a seed with that person. So we planted seeds with hundreds of people, and probably only tens of them were true passionate advocates. Had we gone on with that program, I imagine we might have enriched the language to allow us to distinguish between those. And for the passionate advocates, what did they do with the knowledge that they have gained from the program? Yes. So we had people um, run their own design thinking workshops. We had, um, I'm remembering one case where a support engineer uh, ran a workshop for his group. So not not like a design thinking bootcamp where he's trying to teach design thinking, but a true design thinking workshop where he's trying to use those tools with his colleagues to make change in what they were doing. We also had people take the idea outside of Citrix and, and, and give talks and, and workshops about how they were using design thinking in the enterprise context. And was this connected to the group that you formed together with, I think it was Nordstrom and Fidelity Investment and JetBlue, right? Yeah, so Nordstrom, JetBlue and Fidelity uh, and and we um, formed a collaboration 
and had several different meetings in different places. And we did bring many of our true catalysts to those meetings. So people who'd been through a couple of days, a, a workshop of a couple of days who wanted to go deeper with their design thinking and get more and more more connected into the network could come to a workshop at Fidelity or at Nordstrom or at JetBlue. So how did this initiative start? It started out from people who knew each other from Stanford D School. Olya's daughter on my team was the person who was who was part of that cohort. Um, she actually found out about it after it started and was like, we want in. We <laughs> She um, she made them let us in, uh, and actually they were very very kind and and you know wanted to have us. But some of the principles were, it had to be non people from uh, companies from non competing industries that were using design thinking uh, in their companies more than just sort of you know a single practitioner, but actually trying to do trying to do design thinking initiatives in their companies. Interesting. I think that more and more companies join those kind of networks, like the design a business or the DTX network. So what was your incentive for joining the network with these other companies? We found that we were hungry for other people to talk to that weren't necessarily our colleagues, wouldn't necessarily be dire directly affected by what we did, but would understand something about what we were experiencing and might have different perspectives. Um, we did a lot of stealing. We do a lot of stealing from each other. <laughs> Right, so we we might steal a way that JetBlue thinks about the customer journey, and they might steal something about the idea of an incubator from us. So it's a, a way to share and test ideas with other people grappling with similar situations. So, given the different initiatives that you had and these collaborations with other organizations, what was the impact on the business side? Or more specifically, is there any product on the market that uh, we can see nowadays that has been developed by Citrix using design thinking? There's a startup called Voitrix that uh, was actually an internal team that came through the the uh, Innovators program. And uh, Voitrix is software for real estate agents that allows them to uh, understand exactly who's calling at what time. So it's a it's a, an idea that uses an asset that Citrix has along with an understanding of what this particular audience really needs. The other things that you would see would be features inside of existing software. When we're talking about enterprise anything really, it takes a long time for something to actually get made. So um, so there was a team that uh, made a mobile application that, that IT administrators could have to give them diagnostics on their phones while they were away from the office. And last I heard, that was on a roadmap, but I don't know where it ended up. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, this ties back to the question of the profitability of design thinking. So what's your take on this? Does it pay off? I want to be somewhere five years and answer your question. That's when it gets easier to measure. So th there, I think there are impacts that are hard to measure in terms of a really direct ROI, like, you know, a thousand points of light in um, people who have been exposed to the ideas and are are now catalysts and will understand what you mean when you say prototype, that will understand what you mean when you say empathy. Um, does that make a difference in terms of profit? I don't know for sure. It, it makes a difference in terms of culture. 
Um, but I don't know the math on profit, right? Um, so actually, you know what this is making me want to do? This is making me want to turn that question around. Sure. Go ahead. I want to say, what, what method is profitable? For sure. What method can you count on to be profitable? You know what I mean? Hmm. Like, like, is design thinking profitable? I don't know. It probably depends on a whole lot of things. Hmm. Is Agile profitable? I don't know. It probably depends on a whole lot of things. You know what I mean? Is Waterfall, is, is, I don't know if Waterfall counts as a, like, I don't know if that's a name other people gave it <laughs> or if it has its own name. You know what I mean? It, like, what method is profitable? Right. We can see what profit looks like, and then we can kind of do this retroactive idea of like, oh, well, this is what we did, so that's profitable. Mm. But I don't know if we, if we really, it, like looking across industry, is there some consistent behavior that's always consistently profitable? If, if we knew what that was, we'd sort of be done. So, so are, are we asking that question of design thinking in a way that's different from how we're asking it of other approaches to making work in the world? So is design thinking profitable? I don't know. Is design thinking less profitable than anything else? I don't think so. And that is tricky, right? Because for me, it nope. then becomes a question of belief and what do you believe works? Yeah. And uh, if you have a company that believes in short-term profit, for example, that's totally different belief system than believing in long-term investment and innovation, right? It's a different belief system, absolutely. And I do think that, that short-term versus long-term is a fair question. Is design thinking profitable in the short term? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no. Because, you know, I, I don't know what is profitable in the short term. Um, the temptation that people have when they're going after short-term profit is to cut costs, right? So that's that's profitable by definition. But it's is it good for your company? I don't know. <laughs> is it sustainable? I don't know that I'm, you know, that, so it's absolutely a different belief system. And I don't know that, that the belief system that says cost cutting is profitable is any more persuasive than the belief system that says design thinking is profitable in the long term. Talking about long term, I want to come back to your story. So was the 12 weeks projects and the catalyst program, the last thing that you did? That was the final stage of the design thinking lean initiative that we were driving. Um, some of that work is continuing on, um, though many of us are not with Citrix anymore. The, uh, the, the innovators program is still happening uh, in, in Raleigh with the mobility organization. When you say not many of you are with the organization anymore, what happened? It's challenging to talk about because I'm so grateful for my experience at Citrix. It was just, if it was transforming for anyone, it was transforming for me. And um, my leave taking from there has also been great for me. So I have, I have no complaints. And, I'm, and, I, and I want to talk about it with enormous respect. It was a very big change. And I'm, and I'm conscious that what I say could be perceived as complaining and it's not <laughs> okay and let me go ahead and be more specific about it because I think that's a very interesting and impart important part of our story so um, that what what Kath Catherine left the company so we, we had uh, less advocacy at the senior level and um, the company was uh, taken over by a hedge fund 
that's just a straight description. And so um, the the effort became about how do we save money? How do we figure out how to make the most profit? And um, I think they were right not to pay too much attention to the design thinking and innovation efforts, given that those were the goals. I think design thinking and innovation are things that pay off over a longer period of time. And um, with very strong short-term goals like that, um, it just it just doesn't make sense to invest the way that we were. So what happened for you? I mean, what did you do after that decision? So uh, our group ended. The, so I, I was the director of a group called Innovation Ena Enablement, um, and we were laid off. And um, much of the group that we were part of, the, the customer experience organization, was also laid off. Uh, and uh, it's been great. <laughs> <laughs> so um, really before my time at Citrix officially ended, I started my first consulting gig with a medical device company that I'm working for now as a consultant running their customer education group and consulting with their R&D group around innovation culture. And what happened to your colleagues? My colleagues have met, some of my colleagues have begun startups, some of them have begun begun consulting agencies, some of them have uh, gone to other high-tech companies to lead design efforts there. So that's been really interesting to see. The sense of ending is very profound because it was a it was a really strong community and we were working really hard to make these incubators happen and the people who were in them were really passionate about what they were doing and how they were trying to change themselves and make things in the world. And so it was hard to see that end. At the same time, seeing where people have landed, to me, looks like a type of success. You know, The program itself ended, but the individuals are bringing something with them to the next place. It sounds like a little bit of a sad ending, but a good start as well, right? Yeah, exactly. Maybe all endings are starts in some way too. <laughs> True. So how was your new start? I, I'm now working at this medical device company called Accure. Um, you know, I'm, I'm using a lot of the ideas that we worked on at Citrix. So, so we're, we're thinking about, um, you know, we want to engage, engage executives strongly right from the beginning, just like Catherine was engaged strongly right from the beginning. We want to engage the grassroots strongly right from the beginning, just like those first catalysts were, were engaged at the beginning. So right now we have a, a person in the field who's really excited about having some brainstorming meetings. So I'm helping her to decide what goes into those brainstorming meetings so that desirability, viability, and feasibility are in there right from the beginning. Um, and, and we're listening really carefully also. And, um, I, and I, I'm hoping that by having it come up from someone who, like, let's call her a catalyst, right? By having somebody who's excited to have a certain thing happen, and it's not, it's not her job to do that, She'll, she'll be modeling what it is to be a catalyst in a different way than we were when we had a central organization trying to create catalysts. Interesting. That almost makes me want to come back another day and discuss with you the comparison between Citrix and Accuray and how things worked out. But for now, thank you very much for sharing the Citrix story. Ingo, this has been so much fun. I, I, I'm so glad you invited me to talk and we should be doing this every day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if somebody would listen to that, but uh, I definitely enjoyed our conversation. So thank you very much. Thanks so much, Ingo. With that, this was episode number three. 
Thank you for listening. As always, you can find the episode under www.innovatebydesign.net slash episode three.